Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, Executive Director of the Grammy Museum. Each week in the Clive Davis Theater, I have the chance to speak with artists from across the musical spectrum about their careers, their inspirations, and their creative process. Now, I am a very lucky guy, as are the 200 people that get to join me at the Grammy Museum. Now, with Required Listening, I'm excited to share these interviews with you. On today's episode, my conversation with singer-songwriter Aloe Black. We got together just after he released a new track called Brooklyn in the Summer. He released his major label debut, Lift Your Spirit, in 2014. And his track, Wake Me Up, a collaboration with the EDM artist Avicii, reached the top five of the Billboard chart and top charts around the world. Lift Your Spirit received a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Album at the 57th Annual Grammy Awards. Most recently, Black served as the guide for the film America's Musical Journey, traveling throughout the country as he traced the roots of American music. Most important, he is passionate about using his artistic platform to affect social change while continuing to create music with a mindful positivity. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Aloe Black. All right. Well, um, Aloe Black, welcome to Required Listening. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, Want to chat a little bit about, you know, some of the new music that you've been making. Um, there's a, there's a track out, uh, Brooklyn in the summer, mm-hmm. um, um, which, uh, you know, uh, according to the things I've read, um, is a somewhat of a new direction for you. I think, yeah, I think every time I put music out, it's a new direction, but, um, this song is definitely a, a topic and a, and a style that I haven't really employed in, in any frequency in the past. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, if you listen to the old stuff, there's nothing that sounds like it. But I think that's pretty characteristic of every time I put out new music. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have had uh, particularly one artist in, in particular, I recall a couple of years ago, said the following to me. He said, every record I make mm-hmm. is a reaction to the last record I made. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm wondering for you, is is this track and, and maybe thinking about the album mm. to come somewhat of a reaction to Lift Your Spirit? No, I think the time has been has been so far since Lift Your Spirit that yeah. this is more of a, I guess, a concerted effort to make music that hits different themes. Mm. I think generally the songs that I enjoy writing and that I write more, most frequently are songs with themes of aspiration or inspiration, motivation. And Brooklyn in the Summer is a love song. So I thought it would be interesting to try on this new hat um, as, an, as an artist. For me, it's a new hat. For the music industry, it's 99% of the radio and yeah. <laughs> songs yeah. that you hear. The, is the, like, the personal relationship. Yeah, personal yeah. relationship. Um, it's just not something that I used to do because as a hip-hop artist, as an MC back in the day, you would only do a love track few and far between, you mm-hmm. know, LL Cool J did I Need Love. He killed it. That was the best one. Nobody needs to do another one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it is the, is the direction in terms of talking about, you know, mm-hmm. personal relationships, somewhat of a, a, a window into the new album? It's sort of a window into the new album. I wanted to spend more time talking about relationships and, and songs that had, um, a story about about love that wasn't just general, um, you know, love for humanity, which mm. is which is what I do quite often. Um, I wanted to be more specific about romantic 
relationships. And this is, um, you know, just for me, I, I look at I look at my contemporaries and think about the songs that I've made is that have been become hits, and they've all been other than romantic topics. I figure yeah. I could probably I could probably you know sell a few songs with a romantic topic. But aside from the business, it was just uh, you know I'm I'm married. I'm married, and I have kids, and I have love in my life, and I wanted to express this side of my artistry. Mm. Does it? Um does it require a different kind of songwriting? It does, does. A different kind of headspace? It does require a different headspace and different songwriting, especially when you're not used to it. Like, I mean, I can be open about a lot of things in my music. The one thing I never was open about and I have to learn to be open about is, you know, my my relationships, my personal relationships. Mm. So I think I cheated a little bit, especially with Brooklyn in the summer. I, I borrowed someone else's relationship. Um, I collaborate collaborate a lot on this new um, album, and this song was co-written with Jay Stolar, who's a a brilliant songwriter and singer. But this is Brooklyn in the Summer is his love story. Mm. I just helped to write, um, you know, edit it and write the bridge and kind of make it come to life. Yeah, sonically, it's um, it's got it's it's got a terrific energy. Yeah, to it. Um, and, and I'm wondering if that too, you know, just, just thinking about the sound of the song is, is a different direction. Yeah. I mean, sonically it is a, it's much more of a pop sound and polished sound than I'm used to, you know, when in the past, um, at my first solo album shine through, I was just kind of making a mixture of all different genres and sounds and styles, but I wanted it to be gritty in it. So it had, it had grit in it. And then the Good Things album was throwback soul. Mm. So it, it, you know, by its own nature, it had to have some grit. And then uh, Lift Your Spirit was this kind of mixture of the sonic fidelity of hip hop, the musicality of soul music and uh, folk soul vocal um, on top. Uh, but I didn't really push for pop. In this in this particular track, Brooklyn in the Summer, it feels soulful. It's written soulful. The melodies and the the lyrics are really um, unique, uh, but there's a a nice polish on top that you know kind of makes it a, a pop track. Yeah, yeah, I, you can you can definitely hear that. And and I'm wondering for you know for you, is this taking your music in a more modern? direction because I think sometimes I think sometimes you've been saddled a little bit with that throwback sort of yeah I mean you know throwback, cast yeah throwback is where I I made my name so um you know I, I find that in the music business you in the business really you know not necessarily the art of it there are characters that exist and you you play your role and when you play your role well enough you become consistent enough for people to recognize and remember who you are and to expect and um, anticipate. And you want to give them something new, but you also want to give them something familiar. Um, with Brooklyn in the Summer, I can see where people will hear it and have no clue that it's me singing. And I think that's interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting experiment to try, especially you know in, the, in this era of the game. The last record I put out, streaming wasn't the, the standard. It was just the... It was kind of an introductory or early period, but now it's the standard and we'll see how it works. You know, if, um, if the song on its own merit will, will rise without an attachment to my history or my name, 
We'll see. I think it will. I, and, and that, you know, these days, perhaps more, more than ever, that's the challenge for artists is kind of finding, finding their place, uh, becoming recognizable for a sound, mm-hmm. but having the freedom to be an artist. Yeah. For me, if I, if I had, if I have not, uh, sign a contract with a company where I was going to have a partnership and we have to have mutual decisions on what we release, mm. it would be it would be crazy for people to understand what I'm trying to do. They wouldn't have an idea of what my direction is or what my sound is because I make songs, songs in every style and every genre. And mm. there's for me, there are no rules. And because there are no rules, I need a producer to, to kind of corral, wrangle me in and like make it sound consistent and and offer some, um, you know, some semblance, some symmetry across the, uh, across the project. Yeah. Otherwise, really, it's going to be everywhere. Um, which in one sense is an advantage. You know, you, you, you want, you want to be artistically curious. I think it's an advantage these days because I think there's something, there's something about the roller coaster ride that is, is, um, exciting and fun for, people who are listening to music and enjoying the story of an artist's journey. Um, I think when long, the days of, of a kind of the superhero character of an artist aren't long gone. They're still around, but I think they need to be challenged yeah. in a major way. I love when I see an artist transform Andre 3000 going from rap guy to singing guy to acting guy, you know what I'm saying? And, to see Childish Gambino do the same kind of rap, acting, singing. It's, it's interesting, and I think it is the way, it really is the way to graduate in hip-hop. And I, I graduated early because I, you know, I started doing hip-hop in 95, and I started doing the singing thing in 2005. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of following the footsteps of Andre and Lauryn Hill. Um, and I just want to see more of that transformation happen. Uh, faster and yeah. not so um, typecast. Yeah, but but in the, you know in the um, in the era now of, of streaming, there there is the opportunity because it is so now immediate. I mean, you it's could, immediate. The metabolism could, is instant. yeah. You could literally you could record something here today, mm-hmm. and it could be it could be up on Spotify tomorrow, and you know around the world instantly. Yeah. Um. And and what I find fascinating about particularly with you know with streaming, the opportunity for discovery as a mm-hmm. listener is greater than it's ever been. Now, there's nobody telling you what to radio isn't like curating what you're what you're hearing. You have to be a little more proactive as a listener, I think. You know, sort to, of. I mean, there's discover. also, you know, it, it ends up being a top-down system. There, there are just uh, functional uh, technologies and methodologies that we can't get away from, like a list. So we have playlists. We don't have play trees, right? We don't have play um, uh, associative uh, diagrams. Mm. It's a list, and somebody chooses what goes at the top. That's how it works. So although radio is not giving you your, your uh, top-down kind of choices, somebody is somewhere. on all of the playlists yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, would be, it would be awesome if it was truly random mm. and that uh, everybody had the opportunity when they went on to discover something brand new and not always have the same 10 songs at the top of the playlist yeah. that are further, um, you know, kind of 
popularizing those sure. 10 songs. Do the deep dive. But that's how it is. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. It is more proactive. Yeah. It yeah. is more proactive. You can, you can go online and you have to kind of know what you want to find unless you're going to sit back and let somebody give you the ride that they've thing. already chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that you've talked about, particularly think, think about the album that, that, that's coming is, is that it should be more reflective of your live performance. That's right. You know, I, I, um, my live performance is, is high energy and I love to do call and response and sing with the crowd and get them to dance. It's just part of my, my background learning how to rock a stage as a hip hop artist. So when I started singing, I was like, well, I don't want to do boring slow songs. I don't, you know, that's not, that's not fun for a show. And I'm still learning to become comfortable with that. And I do it well when it's like me and a, and my, an acoustic performance with my guitarist or my Mm -hmm. pianist. And, you know, it's a sit down audience and I get, I get to just talk to people and keep it real comfortable and, and relaxed. But when it's a standing, you know, standing audience and there are big speakers and I have a full band, I'm ready to rock. rock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there is something, uh, you know, there, there is something remarkable that, that, that happens, you know, particularly in those, you know, in those bigger live performance settings in terms of the energy yeah. um, that is hard to recreate. I think in the studio. I mean, in the studio is one thing. I, I, I definitely have learned to be less uh, picky about what happens um, with the recording because I know that the song is going to grow on stage, mm. and then I have the rest of my life to re-record it or let other people in the world re-record it and and build it and let it grow. Um, the getting what you do live captured in the studio. Yeah. Very difficult. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't translate well. I've tried that. So Mm. I I tried the, the old method of write a song, tour the song, then record the song. And when we recorded the songs, they just didn't feel right on record. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sure it works for other people. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know, you know, unfortunately a lot of times the studio can be kind of a cold, you know, sort of sterile yeah, yeah. environment. You don't feel. It doesn't have the same yeah. energy. I think there are artists who can, who have the, uh, the ability to put themselves into that mind state so that they can get the stage performance mm-hmm. in the studio. And then there are artists who cannot alter their mind state at all. They're always on just always yeah. on. So it's going to be that performance. Right. Um, right. I'm, you know, I'm different. I, I, I'm a very relaxed kind of guy. When I'm on stage, there's definitely a, the live energy character. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I can, I can turn it on in the studio. It's just not going to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested to learn that you have um, a real sensitivity to the singers, some classic singer songwriters. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, whether it's Joni Mitchell or Cat Stevens or mm-hmm. James Taylor, whoever whoever it might be. What is it about that music? It's a, it's you know, just take the music aside. It's just the words, right? Put mm-hmm. the words on paper, and somebody read it, and it'll make them cry. That's important. I get really frustrated with music on in the in the marketplace that is not fully, um, you know, put thought out and and put together. Like some people, if they're making a a song, they allow the production to like stilt 
whatever they're lacking on the lyrical side mm-hmm. and they allow, you know, maybe uh, the the mix to fulfill what they're lacking on the melodic side or whatever. I think that's just lazy. Like write some words down first. Make sure those words are bomb. Make sure that if you play, if you, if you let somebody read those words, there's no music and you're no voice that they're going to feel like it's an important story that matters. Then come up with a great melody and make sure that melody works for a three-year-old and an 83-year-old. Hmm. Then find some other instruments to add to it and a great producer who can kind of direct what sound it should be for the time. That's the marketing. The production is the marketing. But if you don't have a song, I don't want to hear all the extra marketing because mm. you're selling me vacuous uh, sound. Yeah, every, I, I, I think every um, great producer mm-hmm. will tell you it comes down to the song. Absolutely. You, you can do all kinds of things in the studio. You can make all kinds of magic. I've done but, it before. And I, you know, I piss myself off when I do it because like, I know better. I know better than huh. just string some, some empty words together on top of a beat that sounds great. It's really important for me. And that's why I love a Joni Mitchell or a James Taylor, a Cat Stevens, a Bernie Taupin, right? Because Elton John in the early stuff didn't, didn't pen. He, he just did the melodies and, and music. Um, those are poems that mean something forever. Mm. And, you know, it's, that's, what I, that's what I like to live up to and try to are you, are you do write, Are you writing all the time? Are you, are you disciplined about that? I'm not disciplined in the way where I'm like writing a song every day from beginning to end. But I do have a discipline of, of constantly uh, fielding inspiration from the atmosphere, from wherever, whatever is happening. Like yesterday I had a conversation with a friend. He said a string of words and a whole other string of words that were sort of related came to mind and I wrote them down because I feel like this might be a great idea. Like when I wrote um, Wake Me Up when it's all over, Wake Me Up, the first idea I had was Wake Me Up when it's all over, when I'm older and I'm sober. And that's, it was... The first thing I wrote was wake me up when it's all, when it's all over. That's a common cliche sure. phrase. Everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah. What comes next is where you do the familiar and the novel, right? People want something familiar. They want something new. That's what a roller coaster ride is. I know I'm going to strap up. I just don't know when I'm going to drop. So when I'm older and sober didn't sit with me well because it wasn't my story. When I'm wiser and I'm older was the rewrite that I ended up doing and it worked. Hmm. Um, interesting enough that when I brought those lyrics in, it was going to be working with Avicii and either one of those lyrics would have worked. It's just kind of, uh, you know, a coincidence. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure we'll get to that conversation. Well, well, I, I as, as long as, as long as you're there, I have to ask you yeah. about, about Avicii. Um, yeah. So unfortunate to, you it's, know, to hear of his passing. It's deeply saddening. It is It is really hard for me to take because I know how much he loved music. Mm. And I feel like um, we've, we've lost one of the you know greatest producers of our time. And I say that because I've worked with a few, um, a lot of different producers. Um, he didn't have the same kind of musical knowledge that some of the producers and, and musicians that I work with have. Uh, in terms of a training, 
but he had, I'm sorry, he did have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he had the knowledge, but maybe he was, you know, savant or something like that. But when he worked on, on music, he knew what he wanted and how to get it with the tools that he was using. And I just found that really fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, very tragic that he's, that he's gone. Um, I, I, I read that you had something like 40 songs kind of ready to go or in some stage. Yeah, in some stage, know, in some stage, for, right. For, for the album. So the question becomes, what do you, how do you choose what ends up on the record? Do you have criteria? Is it, is it thematic? Is it sonic? Or is it just a gut thing? Well, okay, so I can't take the businessman out of me. Uh, okay. Like I've always I've always done it from the beginning of my career, like handled all my business. And then I, even after university, I went to go work in corporate America. So yep. there's like this this business guy who's like, okay, what's gonna be the the best package to put into the marketplace? Mm-hmm. Um and and so I'm always thinking in that way, and that's sometimes how I choose the songs. And that's definitely works with the record label. Record label wants like four songs that are gonna be no brainer. These are, you know, they, they have artistic merit, but mm-hmm. they also will work in the marketplace. And then the rest of the songs, I just kind of choose which ones I like that, um, can round out an album. And because I want to have a, a theme of more of the romantic and love topic on this, on this album, I'm going to choose the songs that lean in that way rather than the songs that lean toward inspiration, motivation, yeah, aspiration yeah. or um, uh, you, you, you've mentioned a couple times, you know, being in partnership, you know, with a, with, with a record label. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, you know, I've talked to many artists for whom that sort of cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem to have a very good, um, very grounded perspective of what it means to be in business with a major record label. Yeah, I mean it's business. Yeah, yeah. you sign a contract; yeah. it's an agreement. You, it's your word. So you just hope that both, you know, both sides will keep the word, and that's how you operate based on that trust. Yeah, um, it, and and you know one one of the things that that seems to be happening um, across whether it's hip hop or pop uh, is you know the idea of artists. Uh, and particularly at the at the um, shall we say inspiration of of a record label mm. going into the studio with multiple producers, multiple writers, and 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 one man's opinion making music by committee, <laughs> you know, in effect, yeah, you know, that that you know that that seems to be what's what's happening. Um, has that ever been suggested to you? No, no, no. It's not suggested. It's just the modus operandi. Mm. That's just the way. That's the way I found it to be in this in this most, more recent uh, iteration of my career. In the past, there was no committee. I mean, I think art can't be done by committee. Yeah. But, you know, that's, this is the record business. If I wanted to just create art, I wouldn't be in the record business. Mm. I would just create art. Mm. And I do. I just don't mingle it with the business. So when I do my, my Eminon project, which is my hip-hop project with DJ yeah. Exile, yeah. we just make the stuff and we put it out. We put it up on the streaming services. We put it up on the download services. And then I put it on my website for people to download for free mm. because that is art. I'm not selling it. There's no business here. I'm not trying to compete. I'm not trying to rap, battle rap against somebody else. Yes, I got bars. Yes, I can beat people in a freestyle battle, but I'm not here to compete. Mm. I'm here to show you the art and I have a message in my art. Now, when I'm singing and I do stuff with my label, that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you have to carve that out of your label deal? Yeah, it was carved out. Yeah. 
Um, um, you're, you're originally from Panama. My parents are from Panama. I grew up here, Southern California. Um, how, how much do your Panamanian roots play into your, your musical? It's in there. It's in there. It's almost every song I'd say, um, I grew up listening to a lot of Caribbean music. So there's, there are rhythms, West African rhythms that make it into my songs that people don't hear necessarily. But, and sometimes I don't even know it until like way later that it's there. And, and it, you know, from uh, like bass lines that are, that are slowed versions of Calypso bass lines or um, Montuno rhythms from salsa music or the clave in, in, um, you know, in Latin, in salsa and Latin music, mm-hmm. all these things will make it in. And then there's a certain pati- particular kind of way that um, I was employing in in this process of of the album um, that mimicked the crooning style of a salsero, like the way that um, you know salsa singers sing. There's a very particular style that's from you know like the early early seventies and. Um, early era of salsa, which is a derivative song. And I wanted to use it because it felt so good. It felt so home. It felt mm. so natural to me. Um, I don't know if any of that's going to make the album. Yeah. But these songs are written and they'll come out at some point. Yeah. You know, in, in March, you released a, a track called Make Way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is, this is a narrative that you, ref, that, that you return to. Sure. You know, this, this struggle... To, to overcome. Right. The, tell, tell, tell me about that. The story of the underdog and, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the power to persevere, bootstrap yeah. story. It's, for me, that's blues. And, and uh, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just something that is, it comes naturally to write. And it feels like maybe I'm, if I'm going to ex- try to explain it, I would say I'm channeling my family's story. Mm. channeling the story of my my parents coming from Panama to make a better life in the U.S., channeling the story of their grandparents moving from the Caribbean to Panama to build the canal and and find work. Um, I'm channeling, you know, the story of the story of of hardship. Um, and I think it's the, that tension of the challenge of success versus defeat that, you know, I'm interested in. Mm. Well, and, and it's, uh, I mean, for, you know, for anyone trying to make their way, that's the central part of, of life, quite frankly, is, is, you know, it is. finding your way, making your mark. It is. I think definitely it's, it's definitely a Western, uh, a Western, uh, ideology. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm perfectly suited for it growing up here. Yeah. And yeah. Um, in the song, are you, are you encouraging yourself as well as you're encouraging others? The song is more about self-encouragement. Yeah. Um, it's the lyric is make way I'm coming through, you know, not for nothing. It was written with the intention of being this kind of, this kind of motivational song a song that will um, be impactful for uh, moments when people need a cheerleader, mm-hmm. a coach. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's what I, what I am in the, in the end is like, you know, like uh, a motivational singer instead of a motivational speaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, 
and I, and I would say, you know, given you know, what you mentioned earlier, and we'll talk about this in a minute, you know, your, your intention to be inspirational, mm-hmm. your intention to, you know, to provide, you know, a positive, oftentimes very supportive message in, in your music, yeah. um, speaks to that. It, it, it speaks to where you are as a person. Yeah, I think I, for, I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to, to describe. I just do it because it's, it really does come naturally to me. It's, mm. it's normal. It's the way I feel. It's the way I think. Um, I, I have this, you know, overwhelming sense of, of calm and confidence. And I love to use that in my music. It's hard to do that and be and make it sound good if you're just completely overconfident. I usually wait for the chorus to get there. <laughs> I use the verses to to show that there's doubt and that there's something to overcome and to show uh, some self-deprecation and also to show some um, humanity. Uh, in the first lyric of The Man, I wrote, I believe every lie that I ever told. And it sounded, at the time I was writing it, it just sounded like a cool thing to say. But then as I, you know, as I dig deeper in it and really think about it, it, it feels like, um, you know, a sentiment that everybody can, can resonate with from a philosophical side. If we just parse it logically, it makes sense. Of course you believe every lie you ever told. It wasn't a lie. It was the truth (laughs) to you. Yeah. But then there are times where you really know better but you force yourself to believe or to act in a certain way because insecurity, safety, all of the, you know, the issues that may, that may, uh, affect your, your psyche. Do you often, um, do, do, just in this case, um, do songs even perhaps months, years after you've written them change? Do they reveal something just as you were, as you were just saying, um, something different? Mm. Um, wow. Yes, they do. When other people tell me sometimes lyrics that I write can be heard in a different way and it creates an entirely new meaning, (laughs) but a very relevant meaning. It's like my, my daughter's name is Mandela. I wanted to name her Mandala. You know, I wanted to name her the, the Sanskrit word that, you know, describes a, a circle, a spiritual design. Mm. And my wife thought I was saying Mandela. And I, I thought, you know what? Even better. <laughs> we have both. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it, makes, it makes so much sense. Um, and I find that in lyrics too, when people mishear uh, the lyric, it just, it makes it even more rich. Mm. Well, and that, and that's also, that's also the beauty of artistry is you, you put it out there, whatever it is you have to say creatively, how the world interprets and accepts it is sometimes not of your, your making. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, there are, there are lyrics that I wish I could change because I, I felt like they were the good for now lyrics that I didn't get a chance to like improve. Hmm. Um, and you know, people won't know what those are unless I say them, but, uh, I always, I always think to myself, what could be the better lyric to write? 
that could beat this one. Um, and sometimes I throw them in on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, I guess I guess I guess most most any artist would have you know that sort of artistic second guessing. You know, your your yeah yeah. It's not a second guess. Yeah. I know it's not the yeah. I know it's not the right thing. I'm just gonna yeah. do it. It's right now. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, and we're gonna record it. And if we get to it, we'll fix it later. Mm. But if we don't, it'll be good enough. Mm. Um, so you were involved in in this remarkable film project, um, um, the, the America's, America's musical, musical journey, journey. Yeah, um, and, and and there was a, a song you released in conjunction with the film, my my story. Um, for, before we get to that, how did you get involved with the film? The producers of the film, McGillivray Freeman Films, wanted to invite me in to submit a song and do an interview. And in a longer conversation, we just kind of helped craft the entire story, like the arc of the, sh of the film, mm. because I didn't think they really had a handle on, on how they wanted to approach music. They knew they wanted to do something with music. So um, along with my, my business partner, Gavin Massey, we spoke to them about doing a journey across America from cities that were important in the birth of a genre. And all of the you know, major genres of the world were born he here in the U.S. Um, so that was the discussion we had, and I ended up you know, winning the opportunity to be the featured artist taking that journey. And, and quite a journey. I mean, you went... You yeah, know. from New Orleans to yeah. experience jazz, right. up the Mississippi River to Memphis to talk about blues and rock. Uh, further up the Mississippi River to Chicago, then uh, jazz again. I spoke mm -hmm. with Ramsey Lewis. Mm -hmm. um, and then we went to New York to talk about hip-hop and, um, and Nashville to talk about country. We went to Miami to talk about the Miami sound with yeah. Gloria Estefan. Yeah, so you're doing awesome. my job. Basically. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. the chance to interview yeah. some of my heroes. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah, t talk a little bit. I, I, I read, you, yeah, particularly Ramsey Lewis. Yeah, Ramsey Lewis was, was a great meeting. I'd, yeah. I um, had his records and I sampled from him and I had a chance to actually sit down and meet him and talk about his, his upbringing and, and how he made music. But one of the things that really touched me was the story that he told about Maurice White. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of earth, wind and fire and I didn't really know the, st the backstory. And I think there's a, a biography autobiography that I need to read. Um, I think Maurice put one out that I'll get, but, um, Ramsey Lewis told me about how Maurice was this very shy um, and quiet drummer that would hide behind his cymbals. He would tilt his cymbals so the audience couldn't see him. <laughs> um, so he devised some way to like bring Ra Maurice out of his shell. And he gave him a kalimba and asked him to do a kalimba solo in the middle of a song. So Maurice would do the kalimba solo behind the symbols on his throne behind the drums and then over time he got more confident he would stand up and do the solo and then he'd move to the front of the stage to the microphone to do the solo and um once he i think built up enough confidence he just quit the band he told ramsey i'm going to la i'm going to start a band with my brother and they started earth wind and fire mm. and i think that's a beautiful story because i love the way that ramsey tells it because of course he makes himself the causal agent and I, I think that's fine. I think it, he should, as he should. Yeah. He's, he was a mentor. He was a big brother. He was a, an inspiration to, to Maurice. And I wonder what would have happened if that kalimba didn't exist. That's really the question. Mm -hmm. And I love that, uh, you know, one hero passed the torch down to another hero. Yeah. Um, it, it, actually, reading about this caused me 
to go back and listen to some early Ramsey Lewis mm-hmm. <laughs> um, albums. And, and you know, I, I think sometimes his, his artistry gets lost a little, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and there, there, there was one from 1969. Um, it was a live record and it was, it was just, it was terrific. It's just, yeah. just terrific. So thank you for, for, for yeah, no, tipping, I, tipping me back to that. I was, I was happy, happy to do that. I got a chance to talk to Gloria Estefan and like one of those moments in the studio, she was listening to the song that I was writing yeah. inspired by the trip called my story. And it was, um, uh, it was cool to meet to meet her and to talk to her, but as she listened to the song, she heard a lyric in the second verse that she really liked, and it meant something to her. It was gray hairs are the ribbons. No, gray hairs are the trophies for a game of life well played, and the wrinkles are ribbons for the progress that I've made. Hmm. And she, you know, I think it made sense to her because of her age, right? Sure, sure. And she was like, oh, that's, am- that's awesome. So I ended up taking that lyric from the second verse and I just put it at the top of the song. I opened the song with it in the recording, the final recording, um, almost as a, as a thank you, a nod to her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, also as a nod to all of my heroes, because if, if, it re- if it resonated with her and all of my heroes are, you know, of age, mm-hmm. then I think my story is, is in part inspired by my heroes. Mm. Um, and that, and that's a, I mean, that line is just a terrific entry point into that song. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, fantastic. Um, I, I, I also understand that, that, um, Louis Armstrong mm-hmm. and, and some of the things you, you learned about him, um, were, were, were inspiring. Tell, tell me a little bit about. Yeah. So Louis Armstrong, Armstrong, um, started, his music, his musical journey at a super young age. And I think at 17, he was on his own going up the Mississippi river playing for money. Um, and his journey is probably one of the most important in, uh, I'd say black music in music in general and in the civil rights movement. Uh, There were several factors from entertainers and athletes that helped to normalized blackness, Mm. but he became Louis Armstrong. Um, and he was able to transcend color and he became an ambassador of the U S through music. He became an ambassador of music through his personality's character, his artistry. Um, and I started, my first instrument was the trumpet inspired by, you know, TV, black and white TVs that I would see that Dizzy Gillespie and and Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, um, going in, going back in your personal story, um, you, you were talking about LL Cool J, mm. you know, earlier. Um, and you were, you were influenced by him. Er- yeah. My, all on. my, I started writing rap lyrics at age nine and all of them sounded like they were, they were LL Cool J lyrics. <laughs> They're definitely, you know, I didn't, I didn't paraphrase or, or, or um, or plagiarize, but it was all in the style of for sure. Yeah. What, what, what was it, what was it about his, his writing it was, in, in your young years. It was all the macho bravado, um, yeah. you know, very, very, very confident um, lyricism that he did. Um, and also just the fact that I had, that was the one record I actually had. My dad um, had purchased M- Michael Jackson Bad 
and LL Cool J, Bigger and Deffer, Bad. He didn't know which one to get because he was instructed to go by Bad. Um, I was I was doing a play um, in the community, and yeah, the director wanted me to dance to Michael Jackson's Bad, so he asked my dad to go buy the record so I could practice. I ended up practicing LL Cool J lyrics for the whole summer yeah. and learned that album from front to back. Yeah. We were talking earlier about, you know, the importance of, of being, um, you know, having positive messages mm -hmm. in, in, in your music. Uh, and, and I'm wondering in terms of the writing, having, you know, always having that, that sense, does that give you, you know, kind of guideposts, you know, parameters, if you will, in terms of being, you know, creating a positive message about, you know, whatever you might be be writing about, but it kind of gives you a no, lane to work in. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I'll write and create whatever I want. Like mm. there's heinous concepts that I would never release to the public that I never want my kids to hear me saying. Things that, you know, I think my, my of course, contemporaries are much more comfortable doing. Yeah. It's just not yeah. me, you yeah. know, I, it's not my, it's not my character and it's not something that I feel like is uplifting humanity. So my goal is to use my music and my artistry, my personality, my character, my interviews to uplift humanity. It's the job that I have, um, been, um, been rewarded with mm. for, with my talent. Mm. So I take it seriously. Did, did, did that, um, did that desire help, uh, kind of fuel the transition for you from hip hop to from rapping to being a singer sort of i think it was circumstance that fueled it i uh, i think gangster rap really kind of just uh made it impossible mm. for me to exist in in the hip-hop world um as i was as i was developing because it became so such a dominant um subgenre within the genre mm. that it overtook the backpack kind of conscious, you know, philosophical rap that I was into. Plus I was just getting into more headier stuff and, yeah. and more interested in like in different emotions mm. than kind of the, the monotony of hip hop. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's interesting to see how, how the world is, is experiencing hip hop now mm. and kind of who the, the luminaries are, but then there's a there's a whole um, landscape of of people in the game that aren't luminaries, but they're in the game. And I'm like, why are you taking us? Why are you taking us space? <laughs> Get out the way. Huh. Let somebody who actually has something to say say it and 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 have have a presence. But you know, I think it's it's a function of the the, the industry, the business, the distribution method you know, streaming is skewed toward youth because they have ample discretionary time to stream. Yeah. yeah. So then because that's what pays the bills for the record labels, they're going to, they're going to, you know, you know, create that as much as possible. Yeah. And there's, um, you, you just, just thinking about the current climate that we're all facing these days. It, it, it seems as though we're, we're more divided than we've ever been along mm. cultural lines, along political lines, along economic lines. And, and, and for you, and this is, this is really a personal question, how do you keep your chin up? 
Well, I don't know if I believe that we're that divided. I know it seems that way. But when I go around the world, I see audiences that are completely mixed and shoulder to shoulder, fellowshipping in the beauty and celebration of music. Um, and I feel like what we receive in the information that we seek or in the algorithms that seek us mm. uh, can tell us a story that is not true. And I think the true story is that we have so much more in common and that we, we want togetherness mm. more than we are, are um, uh, willing to accept because capitalism doesn't work unless there's tension. And that tension is going to be the driving, um, you know, uh, motivation um, to get us to purchase and heal. We make these purchases to cover up and purchases to to subdue. Um, but if we find a way to dis, you know, remove all of all of those uh, those messages remove the, the desires that are created by marketing and media and the attitudes and the feelings that are created by marketing and media will realize that we are much more um, similar than different. And, you know, the, the big hot button topics that, that keep getting played are quite trivial compared to the things that really matter. Hmm. Food, clothing, shelter, hmm. you know, love. Um, you've, you've been kind of outspoken on, on any number of, of important issues, you know, and topics. Um, immigration, incarceration, education, mm -hmm. the issue of malaria. Um, um, where does that sense of responsibility for you come from? Uh... When I decided to sign a contract with a major label, I realized that I had access to a megaphone that was much bigger than what I had prior and that I have a duty to use it in, in the right way and that there are um, roads and pathways that were already laid for me by my predecessors. You know, um, there's, you know, uh, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Robeson, um, my Angelou, even if we want to get even more current, Michael Jackson. Yeah. And I, I, I say a lot in it when people ask, but Michael Jackson, I'd say 80% of his songs were social message songs. He was just dressed up with the great marketing tool of pop music. You know, black or white was the only hit song about racial tolerance. Why is it the only hit song about racial tolerance? There should be more. Hmm. Yeah. You, you've talked about his, particularly his skill at, at including these kinds of messages in, you know, arguably some of the best pop music ever made. Yeah. And that that was, it's the music that's the vector. Yeah, the medicine, the spoonful of sugar with the yeah. medicine. And, and so I use, I use that as a, as a template. Like if I, can, if I can figure out how to get the message into the lyric and then wrap it up in, in the production to, to get 
to get it to their ears, mm-hmm. then then I've I've uh, won the battle. Mm. You've you've referred to yourself, and I love this term, as an artivist. Mm-hmm. Um, d- d- explain a little bit. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, combination of the word activist mm-hmm. and artist, and it is the use of my art for positive social transformation. And I've, I have friends who are visual artists like Ernesto Yerena, um, who works closely with Shepard Ferry, mm-hmm. who are also artivists. Yeah. And I have friends that are dancers, that, um, that are artivists who create the movements and, and choreography to tell stories um, about uh, humanity um, and equality. And then, you know, uh, the music, musicians. There are so many great musicians. One of my favorite of all time is Eugene McDaniels, who, um, you know, wrote, I think, the best political album of all time in 1971 called Headless Heroes of the Apocalypse. Mm. But unfortunately, it was so good that Nixon's administration shut it down, pulled it from the shelves. Mm. So I've covered it and I'm... You know, my goal is to is to spread that message yeah. again. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a, a couple people here just just now, Harry Belafonte, uh, um, among them. Who would you consider your mentors? People who have offered good advice, encouragement, mentorship. I wouldn't say that there's uh, any one person that I've sat with and had mentorship on a regular basis, mm. but I glean from folks like Harry Belafonte and. Um, the words of Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, the words of Martin Luther King. These are, you know, the the elders who have made their statements um, that last a lifetime. And if they're not, uh, if their words are not echoed, if their philosophies and ideologies are not followed, then they will they will die with with them. Um, because I have this megaphone, I have to use it to further those ideologies and those words mm-hmm. because those are the ones that hold true. Um, and to be a point of difference in the marketplace, to be the counterpoint um, when things are skewed a little bit dark and depressed and violent or misogynistic. I heard a lyric on the radio once that was live fast, die young. And I thought to myself, the person saying this doesn't really mean it. Mm. But when they say it, they offer everyone else an opportunity to say it a hundred times because those words become a mantra that you sing. Now, everything that comes into your body and your mind is, is you're consuming becomes part of you in some way. Hopefully you're strong enough to reject the, the pragmatic side of the message and it's just theory. I don't have faith that everybody is strong enough for that, especially teenagers who are trying to develop their sense of self. So I decided I wanted to write a song that was the counterpoint to that. And if I can get the right marketing around it, the right production and everything, then it would serve as counterpoint and hopefully become a bigger message of, of not wanting to live fast and die young. Mm. Mm. Um, your, your father spent 30 years 
in the Marines. Yeah. Um, and and I was I was I was I was reading that that um, he, he he always felt as though even even whether whether he was you know on duty or in active service when he went out wherever whether it was here or overseas he represented the united states yeah um um and and i'm i'm wondering first of all did did he pass that sense on to you he did he definitely passed the sense on to me that i am an ambassador of this country when i'm outside of the country mm. um and, you know, I, I understand the sentiment. I agree with it. I take it a step further and say, I'm just, I'm a global citizen. I'm an ambassador of humanity. My job is to, is to show what, uh, what we can be mm. in, in, when we're being, you know, good to yeah. other people. And, I, and, and it, has to, it has to be thorough unless I'm, super specifically super specific and super candid that it is strictly for art's sake and then it has to be through and through it can't just be like one day one character another day another character mm. um you know because i think that that could be harmful yeah. to to the world um, one one of the things that that you've also been been outspoken about and and something that that the recording academy has also been very much, uh, you know, kind of at the front of the line is compensation for songwriters mm -hmm. and and making sure that songwriters are appropriately compensated. Absolutely, appropriately um, compensated and credited. Yes, yes. Tell me, tell me, tell me a little bit. You know, how did how did you first kind of come to this issue and and tell us why I, it's important? I started reading copyright law <laughs> pretty early in my in my music career yeah. because I wanted to copyright my my songs. So I think my first copyright was 2001. Hmm. Um, I sent in the paperwork and I started understanding what everything meant and then looking at some of the things that were obligatory uh, and and kind of um, statutory things that we don't ha have a decision about, and I look at other industries and I see so much leeway and and so many rights that are, are available. But as songwriters, we're one of the most heavy, heavily restricted business people in the world. Small businesses as songwriters because of the laws that restrict us from, you know, kind of deciding the value of our creation. I'd love to see those kind of things change, and mm. so I threw my hat in the ring to join the fight against uh, this kind of this uh, antiquated system that needs to be updated, especially as technology is changing and businesses are, 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 you know, making money hand over fist where it's not trickling down to the actual creator of the content. Mm. I think it's important for songwriters, the people who put the emotions into a form that will translate to other people. Um, yeah, it's time for them to, to be treated fairly and, yeah. and respected for the, for what they've done. Yeah. And we, and we recently got, got a bill through the house. Yes. The music modernization act. Um, got, yes, some, work unanimously got some work passed. to do in the Senate, but unanimously passed. Yeah. It would be hard. Yeah. It would be yeah. hard to think that it would not pass in the Senate if it passed unanimously in the house. Yeah. How could human beings be so different? Mm. Mm. 
I don't, I don't think human beings yeah. will be so different. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful. Corporations, yeah, on yes. the other hand. <laughs> yeah. Different story. Yeah. D- different story. Um, so, uh, last question. Um, I, 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 I've read of your, your personal aspiration, um, to be a member of the songwriters hall of fame. Oh yeah. That's, uh, I've, I've made the goal to be, um, on my best behavior when it comes to songwriting because you can't get to songwriters hall of fame by just writing hits. There are plenty of people with a lot of hits that'll never get there because their hits didn't have the real merit of songwriting. Um, and so if I don't make it there, at least I know that everything that I did was with the intention of getting there. So there was no, there was no fluff. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we couldn't be more pleased that, that you took the time to, to join us on required listening. The, the new track is called Brooklyn in the summer. Um, yeah. do, does the album have a name yet or no? The album doesn't have a name and I've okay. never done a self-titled album. So who knows? All right. Maybe time. All right. Well, we'll look for that later this year. Aloe Black. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nothing describes Aloe Black better than the term artivist. This is truly a thoughtful artist and songwriter, and I'm excited to hear his new album when it comes out later this year. For now, check out tracks like My Story or Brooklyn in the Summer to get a sense of his current musical state of mind. For fun, I'd say go back and listen to Ramsey Lewis's 1969 album Another Voyage. It might just give you a sense as to why Aloe finds Ramsey Lewis so compelling. And that's your required listening for today. We've got fresh episodes coming to you every Thursday. We'd love to hear from you, and we're on all the socials at Grammy Museum. If you're coming to Los Angeles, I hope you'll come and see us. All the info is at our website, grammymuseum.org. As always, props to the team that brings this podcast to you every week. Justin Joseph, Jim Canella, Lynn Sheridan, Miranda Moore, Callie Weissman, Len Brown, Jason Hoke, Chandler Mays, Nick Stumpf, Mike Rohrbacher, and everybody at How Stuff Works. For required listening, I'm Scott Goldman. We'll see you next time.